Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Exodus, not Colossians, to turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. This week uh, marks the beginning of what is known throughout Christendom as Holy Week. It also um, aligns with the Jewish calendar because Jewish, the Jewish calendar is based on a different cycle than what the non-Jewish calendar is based off, but it actually this week it also aligns with the Jewish calendar and so on Wednesday night, at the evening of Wednesday night, so Wednesday evening, begins Passover. And Passover goes into um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which goes into the Feast of First Fruits. And then 50 days after Passover comes Shavuot, or the, the festival, or the Feast of Pentecost. Um, and so it's kind of fun to be able to celebrate both resurrection and to celebrate Passover at the same time. Because, of course, in the year when Jesus died, that's what he was doing. He was coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the great feast of Passover. And we're kind of hitting a pause button in our sermon series through Colossians for this morning and for next weekend um, to take time to look at Passover and to take time next week, God willing, to look at first fruits, which is an incredible uh, study for us that is upcoming. So Exodus chapter 12, it's in the beginning of your Bible, second, second book of the Bible actually, and Exodus chapter 12 details the story of the Passover. Um, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read part of the story together. I'm going to kind of help orient you to what's happening chronologically, and then I'm going to pull a couple of insights and thoughts from the story of the Passover and how we can apply it to our lives today. All right? Sound good? So this would be maybe a little different than like working through this verse and then that verse and then this verse. We're going to take themes and in, in, in images because what Passover ends up being is this great redemption story that pre-foreshadows, pre-foreshadows, I don't need to say pre there, that foreshadows what Christ would come to do. God is doing a saving work in the people of Israel, and this becomes a paradigm, if you will, of what he will do when Jesus comes. And we'll look at that a little bit this morning. Um, we're going to read several verses together, and so I invite you to rise either in spirit or in body, knowing that we have several verses coming up here. You may stand or you may sit, uh, but we, ri we rise in our hearts at least in honor of the king as we read together the scripture. Exodus chapter 12 begins like this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's households. One animal, sorry, I changed my page too soon. One animal per Household. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based upon the combined number of people. 
You should apportion the animal according to what each person will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of their houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire. Its head as well as its legs and inner organs. Do not let any of it remain until morning. You must burn up any part of it that does not remain before morning. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on that distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you. You must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. You are to hold a sacred assembly on the first day and another sacred assembly on the seventh day. No work may be done on those days except for preparing what people need to eat. You may do only that. You are to observe the, pa- the festival of unleavened bread because on this very day I brought your divisions out of the land of Egypt. You must observe this day throughout the generations as a permanent statute. You are to eat unleavened bread in the first month from the evening of the 14th day of the month until the evening of the 21st day. Yeast may not be found in your houses for seven days. If anyone eats something leavened, that person, whether a foreigner, foreign resident or native of the land, must be cut off from the community of Israel. Do not eat anything leavened. Eat unleavened bread in all your homes." Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and brush the lintel and the two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give as he has promised, you are to observe this ritual. When your children ask you, what does this ritual mean to sacrifice or what does this ritual mean? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of Israel, in e- of, of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, and he spared our homes. So the people bowed down and worshiped. Then the Israelites went and did this. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. These are the words of the Lord. Father, I thank you for your word to us. I thank you that things written to a specific people in a specific place and time are also written for our instruction, 
that we may know that you are the great redeemer God who has stepped down into history, both to redeem Israel from slavery in Egypt and to redeem ultimately each one of your children from slavery to sin. Thank you for what these words teach us about your character, your love, and your working on behalf of your people. We bless you, God, and we thank you in Jesus' name. We pray and we say it together, amen. Please be seated. So a bit of a longer reading for today. We're looking at Passover. Now, I alluded to that there's three feasts that happen kind of back to back to back. And then there's the fourth feast that happens uh, 50 days from Passover, which is called Pentecost or Shavuot in Hebrew. Um, In understanding what is going on here, sometimes it's helpful if my clicker worked. Let's try this again. There we go. Uh, sometimes it's helpful to see it on a map. So here's, here's a chart that a friend of mine made a couple years ago that gives you kind of a cycle, a calendar of Jewish holidays, just to kind of orient ourselves. Um, the first month is Nisan. Sometimes it's called the month of Adar. It kind of depends on what, at what time uh, the writing is happening. It's Adar, I believe, later in, in more of the, um, the, the later part where they're in exile. Nisan here is this first month. It says in the first verse or so of chapter 12, this will be the beginning of months for you. And so God is actually establishing uh, a a new beginning of season. In Judaism, there's actually two new years. There's uh, the new year that happens at Passover, that happens in the month of Adar, and then there's the new year that happens in the fall with Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of weeks. And so that's kind of more known as the civil new year. This is known as the religious new year. But God tells Israel in Exodus 12, I want you to set your calendar by something very important. And he marks it by this feast of Passover. So right in an order here, we get Passover or Pesach, we get unleavened bread, and we get first fruits. Those all happen within eight days of one another. So Wednesday night begins Passover. Thursday night begins um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That goes for seven days. Um, First fruits is always calculated by the day after the Shabbat after Passover. Does that make sense? The day after the Shabbat after Passover. So it'd be Sunday because that's the day after Shabbat, which is after the Passover. So if Passover falls on Wednesday or if Passover falls on Monday or falls on whatever, it's the day after the Shabbat of Passover. So you see this within this thing. And these are known as the spring festivals. And then the biggest, uh, the next biggest spring festival uh, is Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. The big festivals within the Jewish calendar are Passover, Pentecost, and then we come over here to tabernacles or booths or also known as Sukkot, okay? Those are the big ones. You see a whole bunch of smaller ones here as well, and it kind of helps orient you. You'll see up here, uh, uh, Purim um, happens in the month of Adar. Adar is the 12th month of the religious cycle of months within Judaism, and that is a festival that was celebrated not too long ago uh, in time, but it's known as the last year according to the religious calendar. So uh, as we've been studying Esther, which in our Sunday school class this morning, we're actually going to do a full reading through of the story of Esther. It's going to be fantastic. Um, We're going to read through the story of Esther together, uh, and it'll be great. But one scholar said it's kind of amazing how God ends the year 
by telling a story of redemption of God's people Israel from the wicked Haman. And he begins the year by telling the story of God's redemption from another wicked, evil ruler known as Pharaoh. So, um, just kind of orient you into what is going on here. I love what Rabbi Larry Feldman says. He's a Messianic rabbi in California. And, and he says, um, the feasts help us understand a lot about the Jewish culture. And they help us understand about God's redemptive program. Even to the point of them being prophetic elements for what God would do and will do. And so uh, if you want to do a deeper dive on the festivals in general, Rabbi Larry Feldman is a great place to go to. And he will talk about how each of these feasts point to the Messiah. And the fulfillment comes always through the Messiah. And we see this very clearly in Passover. But it goes the same for all of the other feasts that follow. They have their source. They have their origin. They have their fulfillment in the Messiah. I also like what he, he says is that they provide context. One of the reasons to study um, the whole of Scripture is because understanding what happens in the Older Testament helps us understand what's going on in the Newer Testament. For example, in John chapter 7, when Jesus is gathered for one of the feasts, it says on the driest day of the year, he walks into this celebration. It's a water ceremony, and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of him will flow rivers of living water. And so understanding a little bit about the feast helps us understand what is going on in a lot of the scripture. And it's not just within the message of Jesus. We get this idea as well when um, the Apostle Paul uh, many times talks and references different festivals. For example, um, uh, we, well, I'll get to that example in just a minute. When you think of Passover, think redemption, okay? When you think of Passover, think Redemption. All right, when you think of Passover, think redemption. That's the big word for Passover. You come to the next feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, think removal of sin. All right, when you think of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, think the removal of sin. Okay, it becomes this uh, taking out the leaven that is within your home. This is one of the things, being separate from sin, that Paul focuses on in 1 Corinthians 5. Just a brief context about 1 Corinthians 5. The Corinthian church is absolutely messed up in so many ways. Um, they are walking in a whole bunch of sexual sin. It is wrong, and, and they're okaying it. And Paul says, this is not as it should be. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 5. As, as he's telling them, you can't be doing this. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He's going to this picture of the removal of sin. Get sin out of your life. Say no to it. Put it to death. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So he, he tells them, put it out of your life. And then he goes back to who they are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, you've got this blood. Remember, you know, Jewish believers and Gentile believers, you've got this blood that happens in the book of Exodus that is placed over the doorway as a way to mark. It's a distinguishing mark that they've been set free from the power of Pharaoh. 
Christ comes and his blood, when applied to their hearts and their lives spiritually, becomes this distinguishing mark that sets them free from the power in the, in, in, of the power of sin. But it doesn't set them free from the presence of sin. That's why Paul says, as we looked at last week in Colossians, put to death all the filth and all the evil and the sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desire, greed. And then he goes and he talks about put away all these things that come from our mouth, lying, slander, deception, because he's calling them to walk in light, in light of who they are in Christ. So back to 1 Corinthians 7, you got a little extra sermon there, I guess. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's inviting them into an exchange. Exchange your old way of living for the new way of living that God wants to live through you. And he uses a feast to teach the lesson. So why do we celebrate the feast? Or why do we study the feast? Why do we need to know these things? Because they're all throughout the scripture and they help give us insight into what God is saying throughout the book. Now, some may say, do we have to celebrate the feast? Like we're gonna celebrate Passover this week. Do we have to celebrate the feast? In my conviction, no, you don't have to celebrate the feast. But it's an incredible reminder of what Christ has done. And, and when it's done, then it should be done unto the Messiah. And when it's not done, then you should live to the Messiah. As Paul will say in Colossians 3, I think it's verse 17, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it to the glory of God. So it's not a legalistic requirement to observe it, but it is an incredible picture of redemption that tells the story of God's saving work. Um, so there's that. Um, I want to talk about a couple of principles from the passage directly that we have read. And these are principles of Passover, or, or an Exodus paradigm of Passover. Passover revolves around certain elements. The three most important elements in the Passover Seder, uh, according to the book of Exodus, other things have been added uh, throughout the course of time here, um, but the three most important elements are an unblemished animal, and it could be a lamb or a goat, and this unblemished animal is a picture of innocence, it's a substitutionary sacrifice, it's the thing that provided the blood that would go over the door that would mark that house as distinct from the other homes of the Egyptians. It would set them apart in the sense that, that um, by looking at the blood, the angel of death passes over and he says, because I know they're trusting in God's provision through this lamb. And that becomes a picture for these people of redemption. Another important Passover element is the unleavened bread. Unleavened bread was made in haste. In fact, they weren't supposed to sit down. They were supposed to eat in haste and be ready to go because they were getting ready to get out quickly. And even today in Orthodox uh, Jewish communities, in order to make matzah, which is the unleavened bread, I think it's less than 18 minutes. It has to be like 14 14, less than 14 minutes. Thanks. As my wife, she corrected me. She's great at giving me the right details. Um, it's 14 minutes to mix it, 
to knead it, to roll it out, and to bake it because they want to do that symbolically so that there's no chance for any sort of yeast to leaven the loaf. That's how, that's how important they take these symbols. Uh, unleavened bread was made in haste. Uh, their dough was not given time to rise. Leaven was often, but not always, it was often a symbol of sin, especially in the Passover context. Um, and then bitter herbs. Bitter herbs um, represent harshness and the cruelty of slavery. Imagine you're an Israelite and you've been, your people have been in Egypt for about 400 years or so. And what started off as, you know, your brother or uncle or whatever, Joseph was, was second in line. The, be, the beginning of the book of Exodus starts by saying, now there came about a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And so there's a shifting there and then there's a feeling of thing you know roundabout. Next thing you know, God's people wind up enslaved. Harsh, bitter, cruel. The whips, the, the totals of bricks that they're supposed to create day after day. The people whom God called to himself and who God said, I will bless the nations through the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob find themselves in a very, very difficult place. And I think it's in Exodus chapter three. It says that they cry out to God and God heard them. The provision of Passover is God keeping his covenant promise to his people. It's God keeping his covenant promise to his people. He hears them, he sends Moses, he sends Aaron. He raises them up for this work. He empowers them for this work. They go and they say to Pharaoh, God says, Yahweh says, let my people go that they might serve me, that they might worship me, that they might work unto me. And Pharaoh says, I don't know your God. And what began as a people in slavery very, very quickly uh, becomes what it always was. The world powers against the power of Yahweh. And who's going to win? In this Passover story, there's a couple of things I want you to see. First thing I want you to see as this battle unfolds, we've talked about it a little bit already. Verse 2 says, this is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. I find it absolutely amazing and fascinating that God reorients time for the Jewish people to mark time by redemption. He says, in other words, you have a new beginning. I have done something incredible in your midst. You're now called to walk in light of what I have done for you. And in fact, your beginning of the year, every time you come to celebrate the new year, it's we remember that God brought us out. And lest we think that this picture just ends with the Israelites coming out of slavery, let me remind you that time begins for us. It's marked by redemption. It's marked by what God has done on our behalf. Time is a, 
is a fascinating thing. Um, in 2006, we had a lot of significant personal life events. I graduated from Cedarville University. Um, we ended up getting married. We moved up here. All this kind of stuff happened. But the biggest one of all the things that happened in 2006 was that I left my father's home. My wife left her father's home, and we became a new family. So much of our life has been marked by that moment. And God is saying here, I want you to completely reorient your life over something that I'm going to do by bringing you out. I never want you to forget in the midst of the ups and the downs and the year in and the year out that there's a new pattern and it's established back by this amazing thing I've done. We mark, Don and I mark our time a lot by, oh yeah, so 2006 we came here and then we can figure out things based upon that important barrier because in 2006 we got married in life completely forever changed. When you came, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you came to know the Lord, guess what? Your life completely forever changed. It set a whole new beginning of months. It set a whole new way of living and walking and finding life no longer in the things in which you used to. In fact, Paul's going to put it this way. He says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has gone and the new has come. The new life for the believer is marked by that redemption that happens through applying the Passover blood of Jesus Christ to your life. And I love here, he, he says, he talks to the community, he says, tell the community, because this is a communal thing that they celebrate Passover, but then he says to each individual household, you're going to have to choose whether or not you're going to put the blood of that lamb over your doorpost. I don't know if all the Israelites did it. I don't know if, I, I would presume that perhaps some of the Egyptians did it because they looked at the amazing work of, of God against Pharaoh in this battle royale showdown that happened. Um, and perhaps they maybe even trusted the God Yahweh over the gods of Egypt. They marked time by being new people marked by God's redemption. But I want to ask you, even as we studied last week in Colossians chapter 3, uh, where it says, if you've been raised with the Messiah, in other words, if your life has been marked by redemption, a new beginning, if you've been raised with the Messiah, he says, seek what is above, where the Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on what is above and not on what is on the earth, because you have died. Another breaking, another picture of that breaking. You have died, and your life is now hidden with the Messiah and God. When the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. And then he says, as we looked at last week, put to death and put away all the things of your former life. It's one thing to say, my life's been marked by redemption. That's a great place to start. The next thing we have to say, based upon being new in Christ, is then what does my character of life look like? And Paul says, put to death all the old things. He says, don't let those be the things which define you because now you're identified and you're defined by the finished work of Christ. Passover is this foreshadowing picture that time is marked by redemption. 
But it's all too easy sometimes for us to live our life marked by the past and not by what Christ did for us. Or maybe even marked by the present and we've kind of followed this path away from God over here. If that's you this morning, you're a follower of Jesus and your life has kind of taken a different turn, maybe one that, that um, isn't consistent with God and his word and his truth and the revealing of his spirit, guess what? Come back to who you are in Christ at the moment of your salvation. Thank God and bless God for that and say, God, I put to death. I put away all those things. And actually, God, you're going to have to help me put to death and put away all those things because I know how hard it is. I know how hard it is to walk this out of my own effort. I shared with you last week, um, one, one writer said, um, victory is not, I got to get it right. Victory is not Jesus overcoming sin. For the believer, victory is Jesus overcoming me. <laughs> because I know how many times as a living sacrifice that Paul talks about, I want to get up off the altar and I want to try and walk in my own strength for my own purposes, for my own pride, for my own power. But Paul says, Jesus says, Moses says, your time is going to be marked by redemption. Always go back to who you are, redeemed, set free, forgiven, cleansed, enabled to walk a new life. Passover is marked by redemption. The other thing I want you to notice here is in verse um, 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13 of Exodus chapter 12. Uh, in those verses, it says, I will pass through the land um, of Egypt on that night, strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. There is a battle royale showdown going on here between God and Pharaoh. In fact, um, some people have suggested that there's 31 or more gods of Egypt. Egypt was an incredibly religious society. Uh, my friend George likes to say, when God sent his people to Egypt, he sent them to a place where they would learn to worship. But when they come out of Egypt, they have to learn to worship not 31 plus gods. They have to learn to worship and be in covenant fellowship with just one. And all of, of, of Egypt, would, they would go to this God for this, for fertility. They'd go to this God for sun. They'd go to this God for rain. They'd, they'd go to the God who they thought would be able to meet their needs. And God comes to them and he says, I am the Lord your God. And he's going to have to reorient them about what it means that they should have no other gods except Yahweh. He says this. So there's this battle showdown going on between uh, Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. And verse 13 says, The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. That's an interesting word in the Hebrew. Um, the word distinguishing mark there is a word that refers to their identity. In fact, this word in Hebrew, one writer says um, that the blood on the door frames of the houses of the Israelites serves as an identity sign. It shows whose they were. And there's a related word in Arabic, which means a sign or a token or a mark by which a person is known. So God is saying here, as he strikes against the gods of Egypt, he says, I want you to place the blood of this unblemished Passover lamb. I want you to place this blood on the doorposts of your house. And by doing so, you're not earning your salvation, but you're showing in whom you trust. You're receiving God's word and saying, God, I will trust you. I will take you at your word. 
And that becomes the distinguishing mark that identifies them from all those who are trusting Pharaoh in the gods of Egypt. And God says in verse 13 through Moses, he says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I will pass over you when I see the blood. Blood is a very, very important thing. Um, the scriptures say, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. The scriptures say, uh, God institutes a temple sacrifice, and one of the purposes of that was to have certain sacrifices by which someone, like Passover, for example, specifically, you know, a family would have to take a lamb. They would come, they would slaughter a lamb, and they'd be reminded every year that sin brings death. That's what they'd be reminded of. Sin brings death. And they'd be reminded that God set them free from slavery to Pharaoh. And what becomes one of the dominant pictures in all of Scripture is that not only does God set them free from slavery to Pharaoh, but he sets, he sets people free. Say that a couple times. He sets people free through his son. We'll come back to a couple of those things. I want to show you this. First um, Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. So what becomes a picture for Israel back in the Hebrew Bible, becomes ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah who gives his life as a pure, spotless lamb. Um, John the Baptist sees him coming one day, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The difference between Passover and the Passover of Jesus in other words, Jesus becoming the Passover lamb, is that in the Messiah Jesus, we have one final once-for-all sacrifice that doesn't just temporarily abate the wrath of God. We have a sacrifice that is able to and does cleanse us from all sin. What he points forward to in Exodus is what Jesus beautifully fulfills in the New Testament writings. I'll go back to a couple of photos here. Um, a couple years ago, I got to go with even some of you to uh, the land of Egypt. And Egypt is known for things like this. This is one of the oldest pyramids in the world. Uh, and there was like no one there that day. We could, we could touch it. It was kind of, it, it was crazy. Um, a lot of Egypt, like when you land in the airport, it looks like sandy desert. Like that's just what you're like, okay, it's brown and brown and oh, there's more brown. But the amazing thing about Egypt is that you can be driving along and you have brown on one side. I took this like literally out of the window of the car. Um, and then you have these incredible lush um, not pastures, but water fields uh, with irrigation that has trees. Because while it's set in the middle of a large desert, there's this water that comes up from the Nile and, and brings incredible amounts of harvest and crop to the entire area. It's, it's a gorgeous area. Um, later, as Israel is going through um, the, the wilderness wanderings, at one point in time, they're going to say, oh, the leeks in Egypt, and oh, the onions in Egypt. And they're going to be thinking about all the things that they knew from their past. 
God takes them out into much more of a desert area because he wants them to know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He wants them to know in their bones that he will care for them. They've left a lot of this lush, green um, area. They've left a place where many of their physical needs, they felt like they were met, even sometimes when they were in slavery, as harsh as it was. But God called them into something much greater than that. He called them into a walk of trust for him to lead and to guide them in the purposes he has for them to be a light for Yahweh to the nations. And so he takes them through a very, very long process of wanderings in order that they might see that the old way, that the empty way of life, that the way that even kind of maybe produced a little bit of vegetation is not the place where they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be walking with him. And this isn't something that they could do on their own. In, in fact, um, look with me, please, at verse 17 of chapter 12. Verse 17 of chapter 12 says, You are to observe the festival of unleavened bread, because on this day I brought your divisions out of the land of Egypt. Another great principle of Passover is that it's God is the one who brings redemption. We see this, and I won't read all of this, but in chapter 13, if you look, and this is in the HCSB translation, if you look at verse 3, it says, Remember this day when you came out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, for the Lord brought you out of here by the strength of his hand. Jump down to verse uh, 9. Nine, yes, nine. Let it serve as a sign for you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead so that the Lord's instruction may be in your mouth. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand. Go over to verse um, 14 of Exodus chapter 13 where it says, In the future when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt out of the place of slavery. So it's the Lord who brings us out, and Egypt is always described as this place of slavery. Um, go down to verse 16. So let it be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead, for the Lord brought us out of Egypt by the strength of his hand. What I want you to see is multiple times God says, I brought you out. Redemption is God's initiative. It is our response are we going to receive? But it is God's initiative. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. I couldn't save myself. And yet God stepped down in human history through his son Jesus, and he brought redemption out of the throes of the grasp of evil. And he said, I've brought you redemption. Will you receive Never forget, it is God who brings redemption. And yet, our response is to go forward. Because what he said earlier was, um, I, I want you to eat this meal in haste, and I want you to be ready to go. In other words, he's going to call them to walk after him after he conquers Pharaoh with this last plague. Um, one of uh, a scholar I love to listen to, um, he puts it this way. God passes over 
so that the people can go forward. Sometimes when we experience redemption or we have this conversation about redemption, we think that our life here just doesn't change. It absolutely fundamentally changes. It has to change. The the good work that God has done to redeem and to save you and I from sin never, never, never leaves us the same. God passes over, but we have to walk forward. We have to move forward into what God has for us. And I love the picture that is given here about how we move forward. In chapter 13 of Exodus, in verse 20, he says, so so this has already happened, and it says in verse 20, they set out from Sukkot, and they camped at Etam on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. What we see what happened with Israel is they got ready to go and they're like, God, we don't know where to go. And God said, don't worry, follow, follow. And he he leads them by a pillar of fire. Imagine, like, imagine being a crew of several thousand, hundred thousand people, and you have this big pillar of fire, and you're like, where do we go? I don't know where to go. And the, the pillar gets up, and it starts moving in this direction. You're like, I guess we're going that way. <laughs> or the pillar of cloud arises and goes. That would be an incredible, like, visual thing. We'd go like, wow, this is pretty cool. We have, like, actual physical, visible direction for our life. How much more amazing is it that when Jesus gets ready to go to the cross, he tells his disciples in those last minutes, I will not leave you as orphans. In fact, he says, I must go, but there's going to be another who is going to come. He will lead you and he will guide you in all truth. You will never be alone. As a follower of Jesus, wherever you find yourself today, you are not alone in your walking. You have the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide you. You have the word of God to be a light that shines like a light on a path. I was doing something in the yard the other night. And I needed a light because I couldn't see. Like, I could see, like, a dim reflection off of all the water that we've had lately. I was like, okay, there's a lake out there, and there's a lake out there. I'm trying to figure stuff out. And finally, I I went to the door, and I said, Don, can you hand me a flashlight? Because I just couldn't see a blessed thing. Your word, the psalmist says, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to understand the truth of God. He reveals God's truth to us. Scripture says that he is our teacher. He's our convictor. You don't walk alone. Whatever journey you find yourself on today, whatever wrestling with God you find yourself doing and saying, God, okay, I've been led out of Egypt by your strong hand. I get that. Now what? God is there to be your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. The great thing about a shepherd is the care and the quality of a shepherd is shown by he cares for his sheep. He leads me beside still waters. He keeps me from danger on sides. I lack nothing because as the shepherd goes and leads me to this patch of grass for today, 
I can trust that he will lead me to the next patch of grass for the next day. And when Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the good shepherd. I laid down my life for the sheep. He's tapping into an ancient picture that goes all the way back here. Moses is a shepherd. Moses knows what it's like to lead sheep. He doesn't know what it's like to lead people. But the same dependence that Moses had on Yahweh, like when the people were going, oh, Moses, he goes, God, Yahweh, what do we do? He, many times he falls on his face, this text says, before Yahweh says, God, I don't know where to go. That's all right. Our God is a God who leads us by a pillar of fire. In the ancient time for the people of Israel, by pillar of fire by day, by pillar of fire at night, he leads us by his word and his spirit today. Many of us come to Passover and we're like, okay, I get it. There's a story, there's a lamb, it's slaughtered, it's put over here. What I want you to see, what I want us to see, is that the redemptive story is a story of redemption, but it's a story of God's promise to provide everything that his people need. Why? Because he loves them and he's in community with them. Last quick thing that I want to show you is this. It's in verse 14 of chapter 13. In the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Dad, why do we get a, a, a lamb on the 10th day of the month? Why do we bring it into our home? Why do we get comfortable with it for four days as it lives with us? Why on that Passover Eve do we slaughter it? What does this mean? The son asked the father. The story of redemption is meant to be a story that is shared. It's meant to be a story that is shared. How did you come to the end of yourself and realize that you needed a savior? What did your life look like before you came to know Christ? What's the story that you're sharing? What's the amazing, transforming, God-enacted story of redemption that becomes a part of your everyday life? If you know who you were and you know what God did, then naturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it becomes a, all right, God, here we are going to walk, and I know I'm going to get the question, why does my life look that way? Sometimes I might get the question, like, you say you believe this, but you walk this way. That's also a good question to kind of jolt us back to who we are in Christ. <laughs> but when we're faced with this conversation, it becomes a, a way to say, here's what God did, because of here's who I was. I was raised with the Messiah. I'm seated in heavenly places. And God has me on this journey where I'm loved and I'm forgiven and I'm secure and I'm made holy and I'm made righteous by Christ. But I'm learning to walk this out in my every day. But that becomes a message. As we think about going into this Holy Week, there's a lot of people in our world searching for meaning and purpose. They're searching for life, they're searching for love, and they're looking in all the wrong places. The story you have to share this week is, can I tell you about how a guy by the name of Jesus met my every need and made me new in him? 
our Father and our King, as we reflect upon Passover this week, as we reflect upon the ultimate Passover, where Jesus went and he gave his life to be a ransom for many, where he went as a pure and spotless person, where, where, he, where he went and he gave his life to die on a cross so that the blood of Christ could be applied to our lives, bringing us freedom, bringing us liberty. God, you have done this in order that we might walk after you in service, in work, and in worship. As you lead us and as you call us this week, God, may the message, the transforming message of Jesus be that which is on our lips. May the world look at us, not for who we once were, but for who we are now in Christ and how we are now seeking to walk out of your grace. We bless you, God, for giving us everything we need for life and godliness, for, for making this life possible. In the middle of our day, God, remind us that this is not going to be in our own strength that we walk after you. It's going to be with utter dependence and humility. We bless you, God. We thank you for the gift of Jesus to this world. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.